My name is Dr. Michael Yeadon. My original training was first class honours degree in biochemistry and toxicology, followed by a research based PhD into respiratory pharmacology. And after that, I've worked my entire life uh, on the research side of pharmaceutical industry, both big pharma and also biotech. My specific focus has been inflammation, immunology, allergy, uh, in the context of respiratory diseases, so the lung, but also the skin. So I would say I'm a kind of a deeply experienced inflammation, immunology, pulmonology kind of research person. I initially became concerned about the, our response to the coronavirus pandemic towards the middle or back end of April, as early as that. It had become clear that if you look at the number of daily deaths versus, versus the date, the pandemic had turned and really pleasingly already. The wave was fundamentally over and we would just watch it fall for a number of months, which is what it did. And so I became very perturbed about increasing restrictions on the behavior and movement of, of people in my country. And I could see no reason for it then, and I still don't. <laughs> how does... <laughs> how do you... How you how are you supposed to drink with a mask on? Because we've just been told, uh, gentlemen, that we can get up to six months in prison. Listen to this. And one hour ago, less than one hour ago, the president of South Africa said that you can get fined or six months in prison for not wearing a mask in almost every aspect of life. Is that not wow. just insane? Yeah. Yeah, it is insane. Uh, all right. It's insane. It's insane for all sorts of reasons, but I think for me, uh, the one is related to sort of human freedoms, and the other one, I suppose, more importantly, is they don't do a damn thing. I mean, you have to have your brain sucked out to believe that that little flimsy piece of whatnot across your face is significantly going to reduce virus transmission. That that would be my first response, and of course, more more importantly, we actually do have significant randomised control trials that that don't say they work and some that say they actively don't so good luck um i don't i don't understand this world at all let's just do some introductions quickly so right in the middle of the screen we've got nick hudson one of the founding members of panda pandemics data and analytics probably one of the most important people in in my view the world right now because his data has been so accurate for the last what eight nine months um and still is accurate and then on the right hand side of the screen we've got dr mike yeadon sure mike you have got a resume that's very impressive but the one that everybody knows you uh, for is the fact that you were the vice president of the global research and development division of pfizer is that correct no that's that's a slight promotion i was chief scientific officer for respiratory research worldwide so focused on respiratory but yeah worldwide is fine and it was research up to what we would call proof of concept so patient studies full development was somewhere else okay so i promoted you slightly but the, a lot of the media Thank seems you. to be saying that i know I, I i can't be asked to fix wrong information i mean honestly i'd waste my life just trying to chase around and fix that stuff so they, they could check linkedin they could all right <laughs> yeah all right well Look, 
there's so much to cover and a lot of it has been covered already um but i think some of the main ones that we can cover are the ones that you mike um are quite familiar with such as well obviously vaccination um as well as um asymptomatic transfer that's a big one at the moment apparently apparently everybody can spread this virus and suddenly it's a it's a death sentence um and uh and of course pcr that is that is the pivot of this entire pandemic is it not yes it is yes pcr mass testing well let me let me just uh put some boundaries around this i am not in a position to speak for the world and i don't mean that in a non-grandiose sense i'm not in a position to describe what's happening in other parts of the world my life is too busy focusing on my own country so i I have good knowledge of how the pcr mass testing is being done in the uk and and the issues with that um but i i don't think i could even comment authoritatively on neighboring farms so people who are listening need to understand i am not speaking about the world it might be correct or not but there's a limit to what one guy can do what is your limited knowledge then mike currently <laughs> yes well on uh, on pcr for example pcr uh yeah so um i would say in the spring just to describe my own country in the spring we had 40 or 45 separate national health service laboratories they had uh, really good well-qualified accredited scientists and technicians performing this PCR test according to the various protocols and I think they did a pretty good job mostly uh, you know I don't think, I don't remember there being significant concerns about uh, you know false positive rates it was a technical interest because it had not there hadn't been a publication uh, that supported you know the characterization of this assay but we gave them a pass because we were in a pandemic emergency what happened though as as we all remember at least in the northern hemisphere you may may remember that the number of deaths gradually dwindled the sort of far end of the gompertz curve dwindled almost to zero in fact my view it was zero there was probably an offset even then uh, and then what happened at the end of spring was the government made a decision that there was going to be a huge second wave really quite interesting that i've asked people why they thought there was going to be a big second wave and honestly the only answer i can get is because the government told me there was going to be if you look at all the literature there's no likelihood of having a coronavirus based second wave in fact i can't find any examples of it and very few sort of examples of wave-like behavior anywhere so when i spotted that it's only later really I, i realized that someone was setting something up that is generating an expectation of a wave which then gave rise to a need for more testing which then changed the nature of the testing in the uk moving it out of the public laboratories into massive in, industrial scale uh pcr factories which we they're called lighthouse labs in in our country which is rather amusing because if you think of what the point of lighthouses are for it's to stop you driving onto the rocks but we all know that if lighthouses are placed in the wrong place dot 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 anyway i just thought it was quite amusing that they chose lighthouse labs and now uh, there are these private laboratories no one is no one is checking their homework i do know because i know very well someone who worked on the inside who has performed pcr in the lab himself for 30 years so he knows what he's doing and he worked for a few weeks in one of these labs and said that it was just a nightmare in terms of the potential for cross contamination made the 
impossible to have end-to-end sample integrity. And so, of course, that made me think, oh, well, that's, uh, that could explain why we have far more cases than illnesses and far more, far more deaths uh, attributed to COVID than can possibly make any sense. So I, I maintain that our PCR mass testing program in the UK um, has no, it has the equivalent of no, um, I don't know what you have in South Africa, but in, in England, if we have a car that's been tested, it has a Ministry of Transport certificate, an MOT, and that expression, something has an MOT, means it's okay. Uh, it's been tested. And whereas I'd say our PCR mass testing system has no certificate, it shouldn't be allowed out on the road. Uh, now, it would be really easy for the government to, to dismiss my months of ranting just by spending one day and conducting some, basically running some proven negatives and proven positives all the way through the system from beginning to end. But for some reason, they, they prefer to receive uh, criticism from me and others. Um, and have lots of questions in Parliament from their own backbenchers and in the House of Lords repeatedly. And wouldn't it be much easier just to spend a few hundred bucks and do the experiment? Well, for whatever reason, they have never done it. And as a consequence, it's, un, it's, not, possible to dis, to, it's not possible to interpret a posit, set of positive results. That doesn't seem to matter to anyone. Um, doesn't seem to matter that if they say there are 15,000 quotes new cases today, what they mean is there were 15,000 positive tests reported from these factories. Well, you know, if um, if there'd been, say, uh, I don't know, 150,000 tests that day and the false positive rate was 10%, that would be all of them false positives. I'm not saying that's the number. I'm saying what the hell is the number? Why don't you tell me? So you can't interpret the data, and but I think it doesn't seem to matter. It's uh, It's taken as gospel mm. uh, and it's not just cases um, because of course people are frightened when they see uh, you know reports of an infection rising which which they are and I think that's largely due to increased amount of testing but it's worse than that because once you've got a, a person with a positive PCR test a case if they should be so unfortunate as to die in the next 28 days they get tagged as a COVID-19 death and we've got lots of them uh, we, we've got hundreds a day at the moment but the odd, odd thing is um, that if you were to if you were to look at the uh, official national statistics for the average number of deaths that have occurred, say every day for the last two months, given we are told every night hundreds of deaths, you would expect, I suggest, that we would have slightly more deaths or a lot more deaths than we have had in the last five years, and we haven't. So it's almost like a childlike game that if people wanted to, they could look at the official statistics, realize there are no excess deaths in this autumn and early winter pandemic. And therefore, the uh, PCR positive results must be in error. And I've demonstrated through through many uh, lit, written works how that can be brought about. And like children, they just, just decided to uh, either uh, get, tell me, uh, call me bad names, or more likely just ignore what I'm saying. So that's where we are in England. I don't have any idea of what's being done in other countries. Nick. Yeah, I think it might be a good idea just to step back and talk about what the PCR test means and, and how they're interpreted, because it's not mm. a simple story of some kind of magic little device that tells you yes or mm -hmm. no. Um, it's important no, that's, to no, understand that's that there's a yeah. It's it's important to understand that there's a um, there are a couple of ways in which this test is parameterized uh, to produce an answer. And the first one is what is it looking for? Which bits of the genetic material is it focusing on? And that's actually 
important question because the the viruses share genetic material so you can have SARS one and SARS two and the human coronavirus sharing genetic material you can have another entirely different genus of virus sharing material with SARS-CoV-2 you could even have bacteria sharing materi material with SARS-CoV-2 so those things are called primers the little bits of RNA that the test is looking for and assessing the quality of the primers in terms of what they're looking for and uh, whether those things are unique to COVID is the first important question to ask when you're talking about PCR testing. The second important thing is how many times are you amplifying the material in the original sample? And you will hear this term mm -hmm. now, from now on, a lot more, the cycle threshold of the test. That's talking about how many times you go and magnify that original sample. The more you magnify it, the more any error that has been made at the beginning becomes exaggerated. And then the third and, and final thing that's important with these tests is how many primers, those little bits of genetic material, you're looking for when you you're trying to determine whether a test is positive or negative. And the tests are conventionally set up with three primers, but some labs will tell you you're positive based on one primer. Others will hmm. require two and yet others will require three. And that's important because each of those primers has different specificity. There are another layer of problems which get into deeply, deeply technical domains other than these three that I've mentioned. But the short answer is that PCR tests are not all the same and they require interpretation. And my review of the situation after talking to all the scientists in Panda is that we're in the domain of massively incorrect interpretation. Mm -hmm. These tests are being used in ways that they were never intended to be used. They are being misinterpreted on many, many levels. And what the reason that's so important is we have arrived at a very, very strange place when all it takes to determine that that person represents a case or that body in the corner represents a coronavirus death is a positive test. No clinical signs and symptoms, no clear clinical picture is required to do either of these things. And so when you lump together this misinterpreted test with an absolute medical malpractice in the general process of assigning cases and deaths without the presence of clinical signs and symptoms, we are in the outer orbit of health. Yeah, I think it's a very, very, very accurate uh, description of the situation. Uh, as you say, Nick, you could get even more technically detailed, frankly, beyond my own personal experience i've done a lot of mass testing but not personally done pcr uh, but i'm i'm um, 
Uh, I'm slightly too old to have been in the lab doing it while I was you know, doing my PhD and so on. But of course, I supervised and had a department of molecular biology, so I have an adequate understanding of it. Um, but there's, there's even more to it than that, uh, Nick. So once, once, a, once pieces of the you know, primers have been chosen, one would hope they should represent both unique parts of the virus. And I think ideally they should represent uh, a stretch of the virus, because if this is an intact infective uh, organism in in this person then you should expect if you use three genes three people three primers or three pieces of bait if it is live you know a genuine whole intact virus capable of replication then you should be able to pick up one from you know the one end of it one from the middle one from the bottom I, you know and if if in fact people choose to design because it's a design choice uh if they choose to design the primers so they're all at one end then you i hope people would see that that might mean that if you had a virus broken in half that is one that's not capable of function it could still be positive in this test and that's actually one of the problems that it doesn't distinguish between a living infective hit and broken pieces of, of rna from a virus that you've already overcome so that, and then on top of that uh the conditions of pcr nick mentioned cycles and the cycle is is a heating cooling heating cooling cycle where um, basically you know substrate for manufacture of a copy of your original primer is provided and enzymes and the temperature goes up and down up and down it cycles each time and this cycling uh, heating and cooling is meant to uh, allow the primers to bind to their targets and then to separate and bind and then separate and if these if the temperatures required for this separation and, and annealing are not perfect you end up with a noisy signal that frankly gets worse the more the amplification proceeds so it's a real high priest activity um it's a very difficult thing to understand uh, but bottom line as nick says is it has the potential which i think has been fully used to uh to create um you know positive tests where we really don't understand what that means there's not even a standard for example that positive at say 30 cycles you know might have some meaning we could reference it to how likely people were to uh, be able to culture virus from from a sample might give you some idea of how sick the person is but no we don't even have that it's not even agreed within a country what that means and internationally not at all so it's just yep you're, you're positive and then if you die you know that's it's the most primitive way of sorting sick from ill and 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 attribution of death with or without the virus i've ever, ever could ever have imagined Mike, you're part of the paper that has been submitted to Eurosurveillance, if I'm correct. Mm. There are about yeah. 22 of you. Yeah. This is a this is a fairly significant submission that seems to be, <laughs> that seems to be ignored in the media. Yeah, everything's ignored because, well, surely we don't need to explain to people why there's only one one voice. I mean, I I, I can't be bothered to tell you if you don't already know. It's just it's certainly in my own country, <laughs> basically in my country, um, in England. Um, interestingly, on the same day the first lockdown was uh, introduced, March 23rd, 2020, um, a, a little group called Ofcom, which I think is like the Office of Communications, I can't remember the exact definition, but Ofcom, uh, put out some bland looking uh, uh, pieces of paper that was called the um, coronavirus broadcasting guidelines and they sound ever so bland don't they but when you read them it basically says essentially we're in an emergency uh we expect you the broadcasters that's radio tv and newspapers to uh you know 
only communicate the official line as provided by the government and its authorised health advisors. And we don't want you taking alternative perspectives from people who might be you know, incorrect and could lead people to do dangerous things. So you could just imagine a little bit of justification for this. But unfortunately, what, what has happened is it has effectively been, I would say, year-long censorship. Um, the media would not even give me a radio, radio interview even though I, I was until until 2020, I was a, you know, not well known, um, reasonably successful scientist who spent 32 years in pharmaceutical companies and I started and sold my own biotechs. So I wasn't too shabby, but not I'd never campaigned for anything. And so um, I didn't come from a protest background of any kind. I've, I've never campaigned for anything. I've never been part of any political party. My extent of uh, enjoying democracy was to vote every four or five years. That's it. So um, having having pointed out repeatedly, something's going wrong here, folks. So you would you would think, would you not, that I'm not a crazy person to interview, but no one has ever. I've even asked them, would you like to? And no reply, not from a single national broadcaster uh, or, or a TV program. So that just seems odd to me. Um, oh, I think we've lost Mike's sound. Nick? Yeah, I mean, Mike's right. The, the in the in the UK, there's been a very specific set of rules around speaking about anything that contradicts a single government line, which you you know you'd think would be an absolute worst kind of regulatory approach to take during a during an epidemic. I mean, you, you start off knowing nothing, and you have to get to the point of knowing something, and if you're not allowed to disagree. About what it is that we know, then you're pretty much guaranteeing a position of ignorance or a position of extreme manipulation. And I think it's the latter. This uh, this has not been about the science. Even here in South Africa, we sit here day after day, pointing to the data, pointing to the facts of science, only to open the newspaper and find that every jumped up scientist on the payroll of the Gates Foundation or the government is talking about the next version of panic. Uh, yesterday, the Scientists Collective were all about how thousands of children, often children, are going to have multiple internal organ damage, all this kind of very dramatic nonsense. And that's people who 10, 15 years ago, one would have regarded as reliable scientists. Here they are in the pockets of the Gates Foundation absolutely enslaved to the World Health Organization and very afraid of trotting on treading on the toes of government and they're just speaking wall-to-wall -wall nonsense it and it's been like this from the beginning from the time that the NICD put out its first models predicting 357,000 deaths through the whole process of trying to you know get those models into shape we were speaking in the coronavirus modeling consortium and trying to talk some sense into these guys then through all the domains of long COVID and you you just it just never seems to end and that is very much the position we're in right now the the, the scientists talking up the pseudoscience Ooh. are in the papers every day um, and sorry gents I've uh, uh, we lost ah. we lost Mike for a moment there and uh, I think I've come back yes you have come and back I, but see, I, I've been, 
Ben, uh, Jim, I've been promoted. Eh? Yeah, you've been promoted. The names have now switched around <laughs> because because Mike lost his connection there. Okay. All right, I'll I'll try and switch the names around, but um, <laughs> Nick Nick. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Um, sorry to have interrupted you there, Nick, but uh, um, Mike lost us for a second, and, and then he came back. Can I ask both of you gents a question? Um, it's kind of leading on from what Mike was saying, but if not a PCR test and not a pathogenomic uh, flip. My, uh, pathogenic. Yes, correct. Sorry, my, I've, had, I've had too much brandy. Um, if not either of those, how do we really know if somebody has COVID-19? And I don't want to sound like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat, but how do we know? So can I, can I go first on this? Yes. I think the most important sure. distinction sure. that's been ignored on, on in, in, in this whole process is the distinction between being infected with the virus and having the disease. Right. There's a, there's a big difference there. And, and we're registering people who do not have the disease as cases of the disease because COVID stands for coronavirus disease. You know, the important, the D in COVID is, is the disease. And we, we're calling people cases when they do not have the disease. That's a, that's, a, that's a major problem in, in terms of trying to understand the epidemiology. So we have, we have people who are infected, meaning the virus has made it into their cells, but their bodies are dealing with it. Their immune systems are dealing with it. It's not a case of people who are at risk. They do not have a disease, and we're counting those as cases of the disease. It's just a fundamental error. Yeah, and um, just, just to add to that, people who have been infected uh, and, and let's say let's say they weren't detected after infection and they successfully tackled the virus which 99.96 or 99.94 percent of people do apparently in the population at least so they've successfully beaten this virus up and what they do with it of course is they chop it up into little pieces and um, you know it can take some time to remove those little pieces from your system because on small scale they're not a problem but if you come along and swap that person and run the PCR as Nick described, certainly if you run it up to you know pretty high levels of amplification, that person will be can be positive. So what's worse is look, here's a person who's probably immune. That's what happens when you fight off the virus. You know, no no questions here, please. It's that that's how it works. If you didn't beat it up and cut it up into pieces and to do so using your immune system, it would have overwhelmed you and you would die. So if you've beaten it, you are now immune. Um, and so, and nevertheless, an immune person having survived infection could easily become known as a case because the way, as Nick has said, you know, you just need to be PCR positive, no sign or symptoms required. How absurd is that? Because immune people uh, can still be infected. So just, you know, so I've just described a situation where you could have the last dying embers of a dead virus, just the pieces, and that could make you a case. But even when you're immune or vaccinated, it's quite possible the virus will land on you. It won't manage to successfully multiply, but you could still, you could still um, test positive, I think, in PCR. At least I would, I would not want to assume it's impossible without testing it. So I think it's possible people who are immune, um, people who have been vaccinated, people who have survived the, the infection are completely well, 
could still be positive. And that's just clearly nonsense, Nick, isn't it? And But, and, but that's where we are. But so what yeah. if you test positive for the virus? Well, at the moment, that's driving in my well, country, so what's driving an entire national policy of lock, about to lock London down, one of the world's capital cities again, mm. even though, in my view, there's nothing wrong. Uh, uh, we, we, London was the epicenter of the, of the COVID outbreak and deaths in the spring in the UK. And we can see it very clearly, region by region within, within the city of London. And what we've observed during the autumn is that there's been not one, almost no COVID deaths, despite the maniacally bad testing, almost no COVID deaths. And when there have been some COVID deaths, they've occurred in, I think, three districts that were not hard hit in the spring, which is exactly what you would predict. But the other kind of 40 areas, no, not, not occurring there. The most, I think that's the best practical evidence or demonstration of herd immunity or community immunity I've ever seen. Nevertheless, um, I don't quite know how they're doing it, but uh, now we have apparently rapidly rising, quotes cases in London and the mayor and other politicians are proposing to lock the city down again. We, we are at this point beyond science. Uh, OK, so let's talk about then about uh, asymptomatic transfer. Is it even a thing? Because I read that if you're not showing symptoms, gents, um, then you're not likely to spread this virus. Why don't you have a go, yeah, Nick? That, that, be yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that is correct, and it was known before the coronavirus arrived. And I, I want to try and tackle this from a couple of angles. The first one is the same PCR tests that, that, we, that we use supposedly to determine whether a person is infectious can be used to work out the degree of infection. And that's one of the frustrating things about this is every doctor who has a patient who may have coronavirus and who's gone for a test and those test results have come back positive should be asking to understand at what threshold the test triggered because that should tell the doctor how severe the viral infection is within some statistical area, you know? Mm -hmm. And we can, tell, we can tell from those tests at what level a person becomes infectious and at what level they cease to be infectious. Um, and so what you've got is a situation where we are claiming that people who, when you, when you measure how much virus they have in their systems are actually very lightly infected. They have a subclinical manifestation of the, the virus. We are claiming that those people are able to spread the disease or even to be super spreaders in the, mm -hmm. the new scientific language of uh, COVID. And so there's, there's, a, there's a clinical level at which it's, it's very dubious that this asymptomatic transmission happens at all. I mean, wh what you're looking for is an, an infection somewhere in the upper respiratory tract, uh, a, a little topical infection that causes you to have a cough, a runny nose, to sneeze. And that would be the mechanism by which the, the virus transmits. But, but people who have such topical infections tend to trip out on these tests at much lower cycle thresholds 
than the people we're triggering as positives today. And so we, we're running around assigning all these to all these people who get a positive test result at 45 cycle threshold, um, when actually it's it's very unlikely even at 30 cycles that they mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. infectious, let alone um, that they they're symptomatic. And so the, the, the whole uh, notion of this um, asymptomatic spread is is just of very dubious clinical uh, provenance and then then the next layer of this is where did the idea come from and if you trace back the notion of asymptomatic transmission as as mike and my colleague claire craig has done through the literature you find that the entire edifice rests on mm -hmm. two papers from very dubious authors in China in March that nobody had ever heard of getting amplified into the sci scientific le uh, literature. There isn't really a sound set of reference papers documenting asymptomatic transmission. So it's a bad idea with very shaky clinical grounding that has swept the world hmm. and is the entire justification for lockdown and mask wearing. It's absurd. Yeah, and it is. And on top of that, uh, Nick, I agree with all that you said, and I would I would add something further in a moment. But I, I think it's the it is the sole justification for mass testing of the population. If it wasn't true that uh, or if it wasn't if they did not claim that uh, asymptomatic transmission was important, why would you bother to test the population? You would, you would just wait till they became ill and that would, if you wanted to know, that would be the time to do the test. And we should come back and talk about how you could test that because there are other ways of doing it. But it, I, I like to think of it this way that uh, I, I think asymptomatic transmission, uh, except perhaps at the margins, I would never say never, but I'm certain it's not a major contribution. Absolutely certain. And I'll just explain it like this. You, in order to transmit, as Nick described, you have to have you know, I'll use a slang phrase. You have to have a lung full of virus, you know, upper airway full of virus. You know, there has to be plenty in your secretions. If there isn't, it doesn't matter what you do. You won't be able to propel the virus or infected, virus infected, um, you know, mucus and, and sputum and so on out of your airway. But if you have an airway full of virus, you will be symptomatic. It's not possible. It's simply not possible to have lots and lots of virus crawling around in your airway, making you ill releasing products as they lies and destroy your cell or, or you having a vigorous immune response to those it's not possible to have a lung full of virus and one of one or both of those things to happen the virus has beaten you up or you're beating it up and not have symptoms not possible but unless those things are true unless you have lots of virus and no symptoms then the even the notion of asymptomatic transmission doesn't stand up and then as nick said even if you had a lung full of viruses and you were not symptomatic, how are you going to get them out of your airway? Well, the answer is you have to have a symptom. It's the only way you generate, you know, propulsive forces. Rather, breathing doesn't do it. Bre breathing will just consist of warm air and a little bit of moisture. You know, you're not going to be spraying virus at people. Uh, and, and we know this from all sorts of practical experience over, I would say, not just centuries, but millennia. Think about this as a thought experiment. How is it that humans have worked out how to tell if a if a mate or a friend or a business partner, a hunting partner, represents a, a kind of health threat to them. And the answer is you look at them very closely and you work out, do they look well? 
Do they look symptomatic? Do they look peaky? Has their color changed? What about their eyes, posture, the way they're breathing? We're extraordinarily good working out whether people are ill or not, to the point that we, we will say to, to someone we know, are you okay? And we mean, are you okay? Rather than just, all right, this morning. We're very good at that. And you've got to ask yourself, well, I would ask you to, to ask yourself, why are we good at that? And the answer is because it's a really good way of working out when people are just becoming symptomatic. That's when they just start to become a threat to us. But prior to that, not. <laughs> and uh, we generally walk up to people prior to 2020 and warmly shake someone by the hand. We don't think, my God, they could be asymptomatically infecting me with 25 other viruses. We never think that because it's not what happens. So anyway, I've given you two or three uh, alternative ways of looking at it. And I, I, I do agree that um, had there not been this belief in asymptomatic transmission, which I think is absurd, then, then the justification for mass testing of the population wouldn't exist. And then you wouldn't need industrial scale testing, in our case, PCR. So the whole thing, is kind of pendant to the asymptomatic transmission. Um, and then, you know, as I say, misleading everybody, I think, is using a test that is so complicated that it's really quite difficult to work out what's going on. But I, I would I would ask all listeners, um, and maybe just direct this question to you, you in South Africa, has your government published, and do they do so regularly, estimates of the um, operational false positive rate for any mass testing system? Because if they don't, what that tells you is you cannot interpret the results of that testing process. You cannot at all. And it doesn't happen in my country. And I've asked officially in writing to the government and I've asked uh, MPs to ask that parliamentary questions. And they just get they do get answers. But it'll be things like the department does not hold the relevant information in this format, you know, a non-answer. So I think they have they have not done it. And I'd be very interested, Nick, have, if you have heard no. of reliable no there you go so no one's doing it which is just bizarre Nothing. and then again just a thought experiment uh i i i not challenge you in an unpleasant way but I, I would i would say next time you have an encounter with a medical friend of yours anybody on the call anybody watching um ask them um to describe the uh, false positive false negative rate of any diagnostic test for which they remember the numbers like it might be breast cancer screening or it could be something to do with uh, prostate-specific antigen. Physicians should have a rough feel for how good these tests are. They will know something, and if they can't remember the numbers, they'll say, I can get the numbers for you. They won't say, do you know what? We've rolled this test out. We haven't got a clue what the false positive rate is. So, uh, and But when I point this out to medical colleagues, they, they suddenly make the connection that this is a diagnostic test for illness, and yet we don't know. Anything. We don't know jack about it in terms of false positive, false negative rate. And then the penny drops and they go, oh, my God, you know, well, we've been using this without having any way of interpreting the results. That's right. And uh, it's, it's, I think it's just it's crim at best. It's criminally negligent. And I won't go any further. But, yeah, you you should not use tests for which you don't have characteristics in hand. OK, but then continuing in that line of thought, what the heck are they going to be vaccinating against? <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I personally just don't, you asked me earlier, actually, just uh, I didn't know it was a trick question. Yeah, if we weren't using PCR, what would we be testing people yeah. with? And I would say you don't bother. You know, why would you want to be running around testing people? We don't do that with any other respiratory virus. And I'm just we think we've just established because we believe it's to be true. It's true that asymptomatic transmission isn't is not a major 
contribution. So you, know, you don't need to be measuring people. You definitely want it in hospital if you're trying to distinguish someone's respiratory and other symptoms from you know SARS-CoV-2 infection from a myriad of other possible causes. I mean, the the, the symptoms uh, I'm told by some people they're so pathonomic, you know, so definitively uh, identifying for for SARS-CoV-2 infection. I, I think that's bunk. Uh, I've not actually seen a paper that describes that. And I think almost all the symptoms um, broadly can be brought about by infection of the airway by, by several different viruses. So you probably would want to test, you would definitely want to test for differential diagnosis if the treatment thereafter would be different. So if you might ventilate someone if it's disease X and never do so if it's Y, you really do want a differential diagnostic test. Uh, and similarly, if you were going to provide um, antivirals that were specific to the virus, that would be important reason to know what the virus was. But if it's just supportive care, you don't need to do it. And most of the time we don't do it for influenza. We might type a person or some, some of the patients so we know where we are, but it's not important ultimately because supportive care is what's provided. And so I don't think we ever needed to have a mass test, but we are where we are. And a mass vaccine? No. Nick, do you want to take this one first so I don't completely step in it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, I mean, I, I, I'll say for Mike and for myself at the same time, we're not anti-vaxxers, okay? No. You can include but, me in that, that, by the way. Good, Jim. Okay. Well, that that's very positive. <laughs> um, the, the Before we even get into the technical and the clinical I ask all of your listeners to say to take a step back and look at what has happened here we have a, a disease that's been overblown by people who are hell-bent on terrifying the living daylights out of everybody we can come back to why that might be the case later but that is the case we have vast corporate interests piling into this game, whether it's PCR or PPE or vaccine. They have a lot of interest in maintaining the hype, in maintaining the narrative around this disease. They're lobbying. They're lobbying the hind leg of every politician mm -hmm. they can get within <laughs> a, a country mile of. There are corporations. All corporations respond to incentives, just like any human being does. The, the, the whole process of testing and demonstrating efficacy and safety for the virus has happened in the blink of an eye. You don't have to know anything about medicine or virology or vaccine safety to get a fairly good sense that that is a situation where many things could go wrong. So I'll start you with that. <laughs> the next yeah, question um, is what are yeah, we so I'm doing? Gonna, yes. oh, go on. Keep what going. are we doing with the vaccine? Are we trying to protect the small fraction of the human process uh, the human population who are actually vulnerable to a severe disease course and death from this infection? Because the vast majority of people are simply not. For the vast majority of people, infection presents asymptomatically or mildly. Are we trying to vaccinate the vulnerable people? 
or are we seriously trying to vaccinate the entire population of the earth to achieve herd immunity? That's the second question. And related to that, what would be the point if the vaccine doesn't provide long lasting immunity, given that coronaviruses end up in reservoirs of animals? And so even if you've vaccinated the whole human population, the disease is still circulating. You don't generate permanent immunity from a vaccine and it will spring back into action in the human population. What are we going to do? Are we going to vaccinate every single person on the planet against this on average very mild disease every mm -hmm. two years? Seriously? And why? Well, I, have a different, I, have a, I have a different perspective. I mean, broadly, yeah, so I would say I've worked for 32 years in the pharmaceutical industry, um, both an employee a long time in Big Pharma, um, uh, and then when I've been on the outside, I can assure you we look very warmly towards Big Pharma. If you're in biotech, most of the time, what you really dearly want is that they scoop you up and um, acquire you. Now, I was fortunate enough that's what happened to my, my biotech. So uh, I, I maintain good contacts, at least hitherto, with people in big pharma and i've enjoyed assisting people in biotech in the last decade or so uh, so it'd be very difficult to be anti-vax uh working in the pharma industry and i'm not i'm i'm extremely pro well-developed new medical interventions appropriately used and that's true whether i'm talking about a, a small molecule whether it's a pill a drug you might inhale uh, or a vaccine. I don't really, I don't personally distinguish. They, they need to be well developed so that you've covered the question, does it work? And, and the other question, is it safe? And then you need to deploy it properly. And I, I, I have never really bothered to, to separate those because, well, why would you? I mean, there's nothing special about, there's nothing particularly special about vaccines um, that differentiate them from other long lived medical interventions. Um, so, so with that said, um, with, with that said, so Nick asks a good question, whom, to whom is this vaccine, are these vaccines to be given, assuming they get approved, and, and that is happening at lightning speed, which is really rather frightening. We'll come back to, to that in a little while. But yeah, I, I personally, uh, I'm concerned that we have developed, or they have, these vaccines have been developed so quickly that I'm not, I'm not sure that a statement can be made that even efficacy has been proved. The reason I say that is, um, Certainly for some of the vaccines, the end point in the trial was not illness, but our good old friend PCR positivity. So um, in a very large population, half of whom were given the vaccine and the other half an irrelevant non-COVID vaccine, the question was asked, you know, um, do people catch this virus? And it wasn't like loads of people catching the virus. It was a hundred or so out of 20, 40, about 40,000. So it's a really low infection rate. And yes, it is true that the group that were had the vaccine were less likely to be PCR positive. But that's that's it. And I didn't, I do not find that convincing as even proving that there will be reduced infection for the reason that PCR positivity is not infection. It's simply the presence of a of a piece of the virus. It might be infection. It might not be. So, so I'm not sure the case can be made strongly that we even know in the population used in the study, who are generally not the elderly, very elderly, we, we're not even sure if it works. Safety-wise, I think pretty good in terms of short-term safety. 
as far as the package that's been released is concerned that's good but these things um they may not be for life but they're certainly for a long time and so i would say with new technology and these some of these are new technology so we've no experience in the mass population for uh, long periods like a year or more we've no we have no data whatsoever doing the human experiment post post not just post marketing but post injection so where i would come out is uh, i would offer it with full informed consent to the people who are in the group that we, we would see as vulnerable to severe medical outcomes including death on the grounds that that uh, on the grounds that this might help them and i don't have evidence directly of the probability of harm but you can see even if you weighed that risk benefit up uh, you'd probably be on the right side of the equation, provided you restrict your administration to the most vulnerable and provided you invite the person to decide for themselves whether they want to receive it. I wouldn't give it to anybody else. But why are they rushing it? I don't know. There's, the incentives are enormous. Not if you restrict them to the... They're not very big if you restrict them just to the X percent of people who are very vulnerable. I that maybe that's yeah. the maybe that's the the concern yeah i do the mood music is for mass vaccination but it's it's wrong it's uh, as nick said you know the vast majority of the population are not at risk of severe outcomes and death it's it's just stupid to uh give people a vaccine that they don't need because here's the thing they can't benefit from it they're, they're not at risk of getting severely ill and dying so whatever the vaccine does good or bad they can't benefit from it on the other hand and, and if it's if it should turn out that there are there is a safety burden if they're bearing all of that so it's it's not an ethical thing to do at all and it, i think it's worth worth adding mike and may, i'd be interested to get your uh, perspective on this but if, if 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 the last six months of my high-speed education at the hands of some fantastic scientific minds has taught me anything it is that the human immune system is an unbelievably complex and detailed affair. One, I, I've started thinking of it as just just below the human brain in the pecking order mm -hmm. of the miracles of the, the universe. It is unbelievable yes. how many layers there are to it, how much time dependency there is on how it works, what it does at various stages in life. Uh, it, it's an astounding story. It's one of one of my colleagues refers to it as it's it's it's, it's the real swiss watch of the universe and mm -hmm. what you're doing with any vaccine is you're taking a bit of a crowbar to that swiss watch you're giving that you're giving that immune system a punch in the nose with something that we've kind of worked out one aspect of how the immune system works and we're going to go and hit that little thing to try and produce a, a desired effect there there are all sorts of consequences to actions like that very few of which we fully understand they could manifest later in life they could be the thing that consumes a part of your t-cell repertoire that then prevents you from being able to withstand a cancer situation later in life we we simply do not even begin to grasp the full complexity of the system so I take the, 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 the default position of saying you need a very high burden of proof as to why, as Mike says, I need to take this thing and, and whether it's safe over quite a long period of time.
before mm -hmm. I get excited about vaccinating people who are not at risk to a disease. With, at the risk of sounding like some sort of new age hippie, what happened to being outside in the sunshine, in the sunshine, <laughs> and eating healthy? Um, and yes. I, I don't want to, I don't want to <laughs> labor this point. But an hour ago, the South African president said that we are not allowed to go onto the beaches and we're not allowed to go into public parks, right, over this festive season, basically, because he, he, he calls them this super spreader event, which is a term I've never heard of before. Um, I thought life is a super spreader event, but nevertheless, uh, apparently being outside in the sun and enjoying your life is now a bad thing. And then he went on to say that when we come together with family and friends over the season we must do it outside so on the one hand he tells us not to go outside and then he tells us to go outside so to, can you spread this virus <laughs> when you're on the Look, beach I think, it's worth, I think it's worth saying i think it's worth again i like these um some of the questions i've used like my my analogy with uh, you know having a lung full of virus and having no symptoms it's just it's like not possible i've got another one which actually i got from a guy who um, does a lot of woodwork for me <laughs> repairs my doors and windows he was asking me a few months ago about whether the virus was still moving through the population and, and i said well why are you asking me that and he said well how long does it take a typical flu bug to pass from one end to the other of the, of the country over a winter and we we just chatted for a bit and we realized that in the UK, it was probably, I don't know, minimum of two months, maximum of four, somewhere around there. And and then he said, I heard on the news that this SARS-CoV-2 thing this is uh, much more, uh, um, whatever, contagious, easier to move from person to person. I said, yeah, that's that's right. These sort of r naught estimates were, were kind of north of what they were for a typical flu. And then he asked me the killer question. So he said, well, if it only takes two to four months for flu to pass through the population, don't you think it would be the same or less for SARS-CoV-2? And I said, yeah, I do think that. And I know in the case of UK, the clearest evidence, it might have been earlier, but really we had very clear evidence in February that the virus was present. So if you count forward February, March, April, May, or by the end of there, it was done. And and it's not it's not a political done, it's, it's dynamic done. It moved between the population centres and between people you know clusters within each of the population centers at tremendous ferocity uh, of course most people were asymptomatic uh, a few people would have got ill and died but they do in winter you know late winter so no one would have thought anything much of it and that supports my idea that there was nothing outstanding about the symptomatology the presentation and generally it killed very old people who were already ill on average you know two to three chronic illnesses and the average age of death i think was 83 84 something like that the same age as the average age of death pretty much so it could have been happening on a small scale through you know february early march uh, and i think that is what happened and so by the time we kind of realized we you know whatever didn't realize by the time there was a decision made to run for the hills for the first time in history and try and hide from a respiratory virus by locking down for which there was no precedent or evidence uh, i think it was already too late in fact the evidence is clear in uk that by the time the order was given to lock down for the first time the rate of the number of infections per day were falling. In other words, the peak was in. It's very important. Our chief scientific, our chief medical officer agrees with what I've just said. The peak was in before lockdown. And that's a really important observation because what it tells you is that it's self-limiting. 
it didn't require human intervention to do it. And then if you think a bit further and ask the question, well, what caused it to be self-limiting? We know what the answer is. There was a substantial degree of prior immunity in the population. And then this virus, you know, tore through the remaining fraction, infecting many, um, killing, making many ill, and, but just killing a few, less than 0.07 of the population, percent of the population. But as, as soon as it had tipped over, adding on the, to the prior immunity, remember everybody that gets infected is now immune. Once we got enough total immunity from previously and, and having survived the infection, it stopped because that's, that's what happens in epidemics. And the fact that it turned so quickly, literally over a period of like two weeks maximum, one, two weeks earlier, it was still ascending quickly, you know, a thousand deaths a day. Two weeks later, it was slowly climbing. So that, that whole uh, turning point was, was reached for the country in a matter of days, really. And so that was, that was wonderful to see. And so where I think we were at the end of spring was at herd immunity. And so not only, not only is there not a strong need for a vaccine, I think if we were able to test people's immune status on scale, we would find, uh, I don't know, 60, 70, 80% have some evidence of prior immunity. But there you go. That's, that's, just, what, that's just what immunology tells you. And you know, picking up on Nick's point about how, how incredibly clever uh, uh, the immune system is. Actually, I do have another point. Mm. Um, I didn't. I didn't know this at the time. Um, the vaccine design was being made, and I think at least two of them used this so-called spike protein. And it seems reasonable. It's the bit on the outside of the virus that is used by the virus to dock onto a receptor on the outside of your cell. So it's kind of rational. If you could raise an immune response to that, the reasoning went. You could get antibodies that would bind to that, and they should intervene in in infection. And that's quite possible. But that's, that's probably not the way, it's probably not the best way to bring about long-lived immunity. And the reason we know this is some really clever people uh, uh, through the spring and into autumn, I would say more than a dozen good papers now from good labs in peer-reviewed journals have shown not just that there was prior immunity in populations everywhere we look, uh, but we know uh, how that was brought about at the, at the level of a, like a protein sequence. Uh, in other words, we, we now know through clever people's work, what piece of related viruses was it that the human immune system had decided to memorize and that, that, that it had in common with SARS-CoV-2? And it's not the spike protein. Interestingly, it's not the spike protein. So, um, the, you know, there, there are some uh, analogous sequences in common cold causing coronaviruses that many people haven't heard of, but there are four common cold causing coronaviruses about maybe a fifth of common colds in the northern hemisphere are caused by one of them and lo and behold uh, if you've had one of those recently or if you have had one of those your body would have chewed up the virus presented various bits of it chewed up virus mm. to the immune system and would almost certainly have immunity shared immunity uh, that would help protect you against SARS-CoV-2 so uh, this to Nick's question about do we need to immunize people every year I, I don't think that's needed on the grounds that the the, this very contagious virus has certainly through through Europe has swept through the population and I don't think until we refresh the population through deaths and births I, I'm not sure that the, it's possible to have major outbreaks but and in Mark, fact sorry. yeah go on no no sorry I, I was going to say and yeah no it's fine and you know maybe just a big finish was that um, just coming back to what I'd said earlier if what I've said is true a corollary would be you wouldn't get lots of real 
COVID deaths in the autumn and winter. You wouldn't have mm. excess deaths the way we did in the spring. And people who looked at death curves versus date will remember there's like a big shark fin in the spring. There's, there isn't there isn't a shark fin in the in the in the autumn and winter in Britain at all. There's, uh, there's a slight there's a slight drizzle upwards. That that is all. So. But, but the authorities tell us that there are hundreds of COVID deaths a day. But I've explained mm. that by, right. by pointing out that there is an error-prone PCR mass testing, mass testing system being used, which labels people with, with COVID. And I'm saying that a lot of the times that's not a correct diagnosis. And when people die, however, having had that label and get called a COVID death, you would think that that would stack more bodies on top of the people who had already died. But what has happened is misattribution. So there's no more people dying than usual. But instead of dying of stroke or, 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 of, uh, or of heart failure or, or myocardial infarction or diabetes out of control, all of these things probably were what killed them, but they got labelled as a COVID death. And we can tell yeah, this because in the UK, there's, there are too few normal causes of death, deaths, and, and then and the balance is this, uh, I think, in a poorly attributed death. So anyway, I'll pause there. I can go on all night. Yeah, Jim, I, I, think, I think it's an important thing to understand that everything Mike's talking about is going on in South Africa as well. Despite the mm. fact that we have a very good standard by which COVID deaths are meant to be determined, I've now spoken to so many doctors in so many hospitals that I'm absolutely convinced that simply what's happening is that anybody with a positive COVID test is being declared mm -hmm. coronavirus death. I've now yeah. heard enough anecdotes from people in families who've had multi-year cancer, family members who are, you know, dying in the last weeks of their lives, being tested positive, they go down as coronavirus deaths. And the doctors are confirming it to me. No, I haven't, I actually have yet to find one doctor who tells me that those original uh, death classification principles that were well put together long time ago, seven, eight months ago, have been actually uh, implemented in South African hospitals. So we have the same thing going on. We just don't have the detail yeah. and the statistical uh, richness of our environment is not s such that we can see the obvious fraud going on as we can in the UK. Uh, mm -hmm. Gents, we've gone over time, but would you mind okay. hanging around for a few minutes longer? Uh, there are quite a lot of people watching. Yeah, I can do another, maybe another 10 minutes or so, if that's okay. Oh, yeah, that's great. Because we, we've actually got quite a few questions and comments, which I've largely ignored. But I just want to come back to a comment that I was making earlier. Mike, um, is it stupid? Let's just be blunt here. Is it stupid to ban people from going to the beach? Yeah. Why would you want to? So I, I would say... I've often heard this said, and what do you know, in my country uh, today, or yeah, maybe it's today, they're talking about closing all the schools again. I mean, my God, how stupid do you have to be? Uh, the the children, uh, certainly in, you know, the, the children are, one, not, not easily made ill. I think we've had, I think we may have had three deaths of people under 14 uh, that were COVID positive. Now, that's not very many if you think that, uh, you know, I'm afraid there, there is a toll of deaths every every year. Uh, and also the stories have stopped happening. So I think people have accepted largely, as you'd expect, actually maybe not as you, you'd expect. SARS-CoV-2, it does infect young people, uh, and but they tend not to get a severe course. 
Um, we have some idea of why that is, but I won't waste time on that. But the bottom line is they tend not to get ill. And they tend to be really quite poor transmitters uh, as well. And again, there's some evidence to the contrary, but a lot of it comes from China. Uh, and, and you'd think those two things would go together, and they generally do. If you haven't got a severe cause of illness, you probably don't have a lung full of virus, to use my phrase earlier. Uh, and, and, I, and I think those two things do tie together. So why in the world would you want to well, close schools at all uh, and then to, in order to avoid them catching it. And then well, why would you want to stop them catching it? That's a good thing. If they mm. catch it and have no symptoms, now they are immune. That protects them against this virus when it comes around next time. That's the whole principle of of both vaccination and of getting eating it, you know, being able to ha allow your kids to go and play out and get a little bit grubby. Uh, so I ju I'm just so and then that comes back to your question. If you are not a vulnerable person, it wouldn't matter what you do. You can, you can go go and have a house party if you like. I mean, I know you're not allowed to, and I'm not going to encourage you to break the law. But you you, you can't you can't make anyone ill, and and you won't be made ill by gathering together and enjoying a few beers. It's just I don't know why they're preventing you from doing it, but it has no no health basis. I'm going to encourage people to break the law. Sorry, but I will. <laughs> All right, Jim. I'd like to answer the question, mm. and I'd like to answer it this way. I from now on I, I will tell you if i see the government doing anything sensible you can just assume that my answer is that it's good same here same same here actually someone in our country pointed out that all of the pantomimes all of the london pantos have been cancelled uh, this year because of coronavirus, of course, but they've said, but actually you can wa you can watch it in the Houses of Parliament. You know, you can have somebody <laughs> shouting that there's there's democracy and they go, it's behind you. <laughs> it's quite funny, really. <laughs> um, one or two questions before before we come in for a landing then. Um, a couple people want to know, and I, I suppose you you get this all the time, but they want to know if if what you're saying mike and nick is true why is it that you're then the fringe and why is the government doing precisely the opposite mm -hmm. i'm gonna leave that to you nick because uh I've, I've not alluded to any any reasons yet i have a reason for that but uh you have so why don't you start <laughs> Okay, I, I think the reasons are not the same for every single person. I mean, I, I do believe there's some honest people uh, who've had deep fear struck into them who are trying to do the right thing. And they've believed a lot of these nonsense stories and are acting with that set of facts as presented to them, you know, and, and, and trying to be consistent with what they believe to be the case amid great feelings of fear. But there are also just endless numbers of scientists and politicians who are in one way or another in the pocket of these large organizations like the World Health Organization and the Gates Foundation. And the, the message that is sent out by these organizations is repeatedly untrue, repeatedly untrue. And they, they are basically people who must amplify what those organizations tell them otherwise they face the end of their careers the end of their incomes and i think that's quite a significant factor that people need to start 
paying serious attention to. Um, I, I am horrified by the number of people in the UK on the SAGE and on our South African advisory committees and these mm -hmm. various groups of sci scientists who are sounding, sounding off about every aspect of the epidemic. What proportion of them are in one way or another beholden to these institutions? They are not being courageous by failing to speak out and 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 uh, present the, the the real situation to the people and to the politicians. They are failing all of us in the most terrible way because this is having a massive impact on our society and the number of deaths and loss of life and illness and human misery that is going to follow from these disastrous policies massively exceeds anything that coronavirus could have thrown at us. And we, we just have to be mindful that this, don't, don't, you know, don't be fooled, the world, the, world, the world is not a place of innocence. Um, there, are, there have always been people grasping for power, chasing money and afraid to speak the truth. That's always been the way. And the situation with the help of social media and massive centralization of organizations in, in the world is the first time perhaps when the same phenomenon has observed across, has, been, has emerged across all of the countries in the world at the same time. That's new. Mm -hmm. But throughout mm -hmm. human history, this kind of phenomenon has taken place at the level of the individual nation. It's not entirely surprising. And so you have to be a little bit cynical at times like this, and you have to understand the politics of these situations and not be too surprised to find out that a journalist whose paper is sponsored by one of these organizations is telling you what the organization wants you to hear. Mike, um, Nick uh, already has had this question from me a few times because Nick and I chat a lot, but Mike, in front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? I'm afraid I think it's going to continue on an indefinite basis. The reason I say that, uh, which gives me qualm, only, only, fear, only fear, regret and anger. The reason I say it is, I think by all objective measures, at least in Northern Europe, the, the infective phase of, of the pandemic is long over. Like I've said, there are not excess deaths. The hospitals are not unusually overloaded. And yet, and I'm sure Nick's right, you know, for all these different reasons about why people do, uh, you know, things they shouldn't. And I think a lot of people, yes, at least initially, were genuinely doing their best. I think that pool has diminished. Um, and people have taken sides. And unfortunately, I'm, I, I, I may be right, and I think I am. Why the hell would I be wasting my life doing this if I didn't think we were way off course? No one pays me a dime. I've given my entire life up for about eight months. It's not improved my health either. Uh, um, but I, I'm doing it because I don't see very many people doing it. And I, I know it is, uh, I won't name the person because it'll be embarrassing, but you need a peculiar set of uh, attributes to be where Nick and I are right now. You need to have had a sufficiently broad education that, that you can recognize things are not right. Uh, and you should have some idea or networks that allow you to have some idea of what, what would re be reasonable given this, this new virus and so on. Immunology, in my case, mass testing would be another. 
Uh, you also have to be sufficiently independent that no one's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, can you stop saying that now? And I, I'm independent, so I can do what I like. And then finally, I think I, have, I just have an incredibly strong driver against unfairness. That's what brought, brought me here. Uh, if, I didn't, if I didn't care about people, you know, generally, I would just put my head down like loads of my friends have. But the combination of knowing I, I can see what's going on is not right. Uh, I am independent, so I can say what I think. And I have a, I have an anti-unfairness gene, which is overexpressed. So, yeah. But anyway, but I, looking forward, I, I'm afraid I don't see it changing because it's depressing to say it, but the fear message still pumps out every night from the TV and all over the newspapers. People are complying more now than they ever used to. I see people walking in the street wearing masks, big face nappies, and you're not even required to in the UK. You're not required to wear face coverings outside. Uh, but I see them walking around uh, all ages wearing these face masks. Um, and uh, it's got worse over the last few weeks. So I'm not optimistic. I keep I keep singing my, my tune and I hope people will notice, but it's hard to be optimistic. <laughs> See, you've, you've adhered to the message. But no, I, I, I wish I could believe it. Well, here's the thing. If the natural phase of the pandemic is largely over, and I think it is, that means we're continuing beyond that. And why do I? Why would anyone think it'll stop next time? No, it won't. There'll be a third wave and a fourth wave. I'm afraid I think this is permanent. So Easter, Easter's like off the cards. <laughs> well, it depends on which Easter. Depends on which Easter. Yeah. Um, there isn't an act. There is not an actual end. There's not a natural ending to this. That's not to say it will never end. Yeah. But if anyone on this, if anyone on this broadcast thinks, well, you know, it's just a virus, it'll blow away. Uh, uh-uh. uh. It's already blown away. Um, I know we were supposed to go, but I've got actually one more question. I think Nick. Hang on. I think Nick might be better equipped to answer this one. Um, but. Maybe this actually applies in the UK too, uh, Mike. But are hospitals really overwhelmed? And are they overwhelmed by actual COVID cases? Let me read this. Who need medical attention or people who have a mild cold and just fear dying because of the fear that has been installed? That's a great question. Yeah, so there definitely are hospitals in South Africa that are hopping right now. And, you know, I, I... I think what's very important to understand is that there permanently are hospitals in South Africa that are hopping. We have one of the most poorly uh, administered public health uh, sectors in the world, uh, especially when you get down to provinces like Mpumalanga and the Eastern Cape. And right now the Eastern Cape is, is a bit busy. But overall, this this mantra of overwhelmed hospitals has been greatly overblown. It would be closer to uh, the truth to say that the major threat faced by hospitals in the face of coronavirus is that they've been underwhelmed, that they've had not enough patients, not enough business to keep their their operations going. There have been major threats to the solvency of hospitals uh, all over the world as a result of this overreaction. So yes, there are overwhelmed hospitals. No, we don't want that. Yes, we feel sorry for doctors and the people who are going into those overwhelmed hospitals. That's bad. And we would like to have a world that didn't contain that. 
but to use that as the justification for the continuation of these silly, silly policies that harm so many people so grievously is absurd. Yeah, I, I would say so. So uh, we're getting into the winter in the UK and uh, unfortunately it's always true that we get uh, uh, overloaded hospitals in winter. In fact, we even have a phrase, you can, like I have a stock headline for a newspaper, NHS winter crisis. You have one every year. Some years it's very much worse than others. I would say at the moment it's kind of slightly less bad than most winters, but you know, there is still a long way to go. It's still January and February and so on. And yes, there are definitely some hospitals that are overwhelmed, as Nick said. But in the, in the main, that's not what we're hearing. And when you look objectively at the numbers um, in hospital, um, yeah, uh, it may be slightly elevated over normal, but I'm not even sure that they're necessarily uh, being admitted because they have COVID. And in fact, I'm mm. sure that's not the case. Let me give you a quick example that this is a severe acute respiratory uh, virus uh, syndrome virus. You ought to expect if you infect a population and they get ill, one of the prominent symptoms would be respiratory and respiratory illnesses. But we have multiple measures of respiratory illness in the UK, really good quality data. Uh, people calling an emergency at one NHS 111, they describe the symptoms they've got. And, and what we can say is at the moment, people calling that service with respiratory symptoms below normal, below normal, not just like normal, below normal. The number of people visiting accident and emergency, the so-called emergency room, because they're ill, we can categorize them as like a heart problem or they're collapsing or they have respiratory problems. The number of people walking up ill with respiratory conditions below normal. So you can go as, go wherever you like and start dividing the hospital population up and whether they went in because they had COVID or found they had it after they got in. But given the nature of the virus and those two facts I've just given you, mm. um, I think there's no evidence whatsoever that COVID is overwhelming the health service. Uh, and uh, But there you go. And as I say, no more death than usual. Uh, the respiratory symptoms are not what's driving health-seeking behavior but we're still locking down, wearing masks more, and that's why I'm not optimistic. And also, nothing is changing in terms of um, the competing voices against the government. It's it's a tiny handful, it's a pitiful handful of people. In fact, I will say to the biologists I've worked for for 30 years, mm. where the fuck are you? Where are you? <laughs> where are you? You know, because a lot of you will be my age. You're, re you're retired or nearly retired. Why aren't you speaking out? Why aren't you speaking out? Yeah. Because if, exactly if you right. don't, everything would... What do they say? All it takes for bad things to happen is a few people to do nothing. Well, you're mm. amongst them. Get your butt moving. Mike, um, I want to thank you. As you were speaking, uh, Nick's battery on his laptop died and he messaged me to, to apologize. Um, but that is pretty much the end of our conversation. Um, I know that... Uh, that your your presence here has been very valuable. There have been quite a lot of people watching, a lot of comments, uh, lots of people, lots of people saying that they appreciate your bravery. Please don't stop. Mm -hmm. Please keep going, that, that they follow you online. Um, Thank you. All the way down here at the bottom of the African continent, you have you have a large following. Um, Thank you very much. I, I feel uh, privileged that you're listening to me. And uh, I hope that those of you who have sufficient knowledge of the biology if you can, and I recognize you are, you can't all, but those of yeah. you who can take a little bit of a risk, you know, you're not going to get shot in the face, probably. Yeah. Take a bit of a reputational risk. Draw right. to it neighbors that 
you know, if it's true in your country, and I'm not speaking for South Africa, but yeah. where, when you have the data, be honest with it and have those brave conversations, please. Yeah. Um, as you can see, Nick f joined us quickly there to say cheers. Nick, we were just signing off as All your right. battery died. Uh, I was thanking everybody. Um, Mike, Mike was receiving a lot of support. I just want to say, Nick, that uh, uh, one lady said that you are very good looking. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, even without the mask. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you very much uh, Nick Hudson from Panda thank you very much Dr. Mike Eden Nick thank closing you very thoughts much. let's meet again sometime yeah, thanks very much and yes see you soon Mike uh, thanks a lot it was a lot right. of fun right well done, thanks gents thanks enjoy the rest of your evening will do then cheers bye bye, bye, -bye. <laughs>